Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Today's episode of Growth Everywhere is brought to you by Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Single Grain covers services such as search engine optimization, Facebook advertising, Google advertising, YouTube advertising, content marketing, and conversion rate optimization. To learn more about Single Grain, go to www.singlegrain.com grow to learn about eight marketing campaigns that we've used in the past to help uh, clients grow, including the one that helped generate over 1,500% return on investment. Hey everyone, so in this interview, I am talking to the CEO of Lua, Michael DeFranco, who is a 26-year-old entrepreneur who grew up with two parents that were entrepreneurs as well. So I think he has a really interesting story to share. Um, and you know his his business is a it's an enterprise mobile messaging app, and you're probably wondering what's the difference between that and like a WeChat or a WhatsApp. And you know I'll let him talk about what the opportunities are there. Um, very smart person. His company has worked with the Brooklyn Nets and has also worked with um, you know people who run the Super Bowl. So um, hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today we have Michael DeFranco, who is the CEO of Lua, which is an enterprise messaging app. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for being on the show. So I guess, you know, why don't we start off with your background first and we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, so this is a company I've been working on pretty much my entire life. Uh, I was born in a family that's been building uh, software for the enterprise, uh, mostly the defense industry. And it was over the course of a handful of projects that I was working on them that I, I came to you know, develop this application. Uh, we were doing relief effort work around Hurricane Katrina and helping first responders get down to Louisiana as quickly as possible. And that's where I saw that there was a, a pretty big uh, gap in uh, mobile-first enterprise communication system. It was very easy to, you know, share information from computer to computer, uh, yet the majority of the workers were in the field unconnected. And it seemed like a, a great opportunity, if there was a future event like that, to be able to sync people together in an internal network. Um, and from there, spawned Lua. Got it. So help me understand this. How does this differ, and this might be an ignorant question, how does this differ from like a WhatsApp or like a WeChat? Yeah, I, I think the easiest way of describing it is if you saw the capabilities of a messaging system combined with a file sharing system with an addition of instant conference calling, uh, all in secure network with back-end analytics. And so we try and take pieces from consumer behavior that everyone's used to, bring it into the workforce. Uh, you know, you need your files, you need your contacts, you need to call, message them, and you need to uh, see if anyone's read any of those. Um, and wrap that in a secure network and make it easily accessible from any device that you have. Okay. You know, I was looking at your site. The most, or you know, my background. I look at analytics a lot. So, you know, can you can you explain or talk about the analytics portion a little bit and how it helps businesses? Yeah, I think um, a lot of companies assume that they understand the communication pathways within their organization, but at the end of the day, they're relying on they're relying on anecdotes uh, through interviews to understand what was the workflow like. Say there was a disaster in a city. 
how did the fire and police communicate with each other? Well, this is anecdotally how we saw things happen, but can you actually study that over time? Or if you run multiple divisions of a hotel, you know, uh, two or three of them are performing well, yet one's performing poorly, one of them is, is in between, what's the difference between the three? Because we have the same thesis from division to division, yet some are under or overperforming. What's different? And so this begins to allow you to see what are the actual day-to-day uh, pathways in which your different departments and individuals are communicating with each other. Are you able to predict trends or stop things quickly? And so for the first time, really being able to understand, you know, how does my organization communicate without necessarily seeing what they're saying, but just the pathways in which they are um, connecting. Cool. Can you give us an example of the analytics in, in, in real-world action? Yeah, there's a stadium uh, who actually saw a dramatic increase in revenue after mm-hmm. using this, this analytics dashboard. What they began to uh, understand was during game days, uh, their ticketing and their sales division uh, were communicating very thoroughly, yet the marketing division really had the deals for each game. And so the more communication between the two, uh, you know, the less they were actually getting to what is the actual deal we're selling today. They saw that stopgap, said you guys should be communicating way less during game days and you should be really increasing your communication with the marketing team because they're the ones that are actually making these decisions in real time. Uh, that led them to actually dramatically increase in revenue. And analytics is very new for us, but uh, early signs like that really begin to illustrate what can actually happen at that scale. Wow. Okay. Cool. So let's talk about the name a little bit. You know, where does the, where does the name Lua come from? Yeah. You know, I think when you're a founder of a company, uh, the first thing you need to do is is name it something that you can relate to. That when you explain to people, you know, they understand the heart and soul of what the company is. And when you sell it to a client, you know, they feel proud that they're a part of a brand like this. And so for me, it took a long time. We went through a lot of different names, and what I landed on was the word Lua. Um, if you look at the origins of it, it comes from uh, ancient Hawaii. Big Island specifically, um, you know, the dance of hula uh, is a dance that actually uh, at, at times uh, works through uh, the martial art moves of Lua. And so Lua was a Hawaiian martial art. It taught a form of developing communication with their fellow warriors during warfare. Uh, it's a lot of balancing positives and negatives. And it's, it, it's a way in which you can really propel yourself to be the best you can be and, and at scale in organization. And so to me, uh, it's really, you know, uh, you know uh, giving homage to my roots and helping apply ancient wisdom to the modern day workforce. Awesome. Great. So let's, let's hop into, you know, user acquisition. You know, how did you acquire, let's say, your first thousand customers? Yeah, I think... You know, the very first ones were, were organic. It just being down the door, um, you know, referrals from each other. Uh, started working at the stadium that actually gave me a cold call uh, selling me tickets, and I was able to you know, get them to ask me what I do, pitch them, help them open their doors. Um, and then from there, it's been a combination of, you know, LinkedIn, I think, has been one of the very best methods of inbound requests. Um, but really helping within the press not talk about our software, but let our clients really uh, illustrate what can happen once you bring them to the next level. Um, outside of that, an inside sales team, we work with channel partners, resellers, um, and, and other individuals that, that understand there's a need out there. Uh, they work with these individuals, and they're happy to make that introduction. And so I, I think it's a combination of those pathways. Got it. So, you know, a lot, you, know, you talked about inside sales. You know, I'm sure you guys are doing a lot of you know, things uh, other startups do in terms of user acquisition. But is there any one unique thing that you think uh, you guys are doing to acquire more customers today? Yeah, I think um, it started to be a trend over this year. We worked with the Super Bowl in February. Had a large network, had volunteer coordinators, you know, people from the Super Bowl committee, people from all the different media companies. And at the very end of the project, uh, we do a unique thing here at Lua where we actually build in real-time customer service. And so at the end, uh, within your department, uh, within your directory, you have each part of the organization broken down by department. The very last one is your customer service. Um, that actually has real-life Lua users on it. When you send a message to them, uh, they receive it in real time when we get back to you with customer service. But at the end of that Super Bowl project, a few representatives 
from the organization said, you know, the Super Bowl's over. We're going to go work with a, a few other festivals, a few other organizations. Can we bring Lua with us? And so we actually have a unique way of, of getting uh, further business with customers by just having uh, customer service inside of there. And so from there, we actually got to power the New York uh, Wine and Food Festival and continue to work from there. And so referrals that are built into our platform, I think, is unique to, to what Lua does. Got it. Do you, do you think, you know, part of the reason is because your, your, your product is just, you know, there, there's not a lot of things, because I, I haven't heard a lot of enterprise messaging apps. Do you think it's just because you guys have a great product too? I think um, it's a very early market. I, I think if our thesis is correct, in two years, people are going to look around and wonder why they had a business email account and a work email account. They only had one platform in which they spoke with their friends. Whether they are using a handful of different social messaging platforms, where's the one that's designated further inbox? And I think that's just because the mobile enterprise is a very new concept. I think you saw two years ago, everyone getting really excited about BYOD, CYOD, really empowering people with the device. But if, if you really look back in time, not everyone really empowered the workforce with mobile enterprise software, just mobile device. And I think what they expected was you know, the dramatic increase in productivity that the PC brought to the business. Yet people forget that the PC and the laptop came with, with enterprise tools. And Windows, it had Word, PowerPoint, Excel, it had Outlook. And so it came out of the box with tools that made your workforce more efficient. If you're providing devices to your organization without a mobile enterprise strategy around software, um, I, I think there's something missing there. And so I think we're very new to this concept. Um, and I think that early on, I got a lot of insight into what are all the big players doing right now when something critical really happened um, and began to study the market at a very early time. So I think if, if I hadn't seen the veil pulled back that early, I wouldn't have become this passionate about building it. And I think right now our, our, our timing is excellent. But I, over time, I expect this to become a very big market, which we're excited to plan. Got it. And you know, you talked a little bit about, did you say BYOD? I'm not sure exactly what that means. Yeah, just bring your device to work, choose okay. your own device. Got it. Um, you know, a, a, any way in which you are allowing your workers to use the power of a mobile or a tablet device in the workforce. Okay, got it. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I've seen some other entrepreneurs joining me. They're like, you know, look, look at the way uh, people in China use WeChat. And it's, they use it almost, it's almost, they use it for business uh, purposes too. You know, they're uploading stuff all the time. They're chatting in there. So that's kind of, I, I think you guys are doing it, but it, it's at a much deeper level. So I, I totally agree with you. I think... It's a, it's a market that's untapped right now, so uh, yeah. I actually spoke with a business owner yesterday that actually runs a 30,000-person organization over WeChat, which is, for me, it just proves our thesis. They have never had an inbox. All they've done is message, and he said, at the end of the day, this is an extremely unsecured network, yet this is the best way of getting my business done. I can have a one-to-one -one replacement for that, yet have you know, full audit history and security. That This really seems like the next step in what we do as an organization. And so I think there are some markets out there that are even more forward-thinking than us. And I think it's just because of the infrastructure within the organization. You know, they weren't tied to a lot of the hardware that a lot of the incumbents in the U.S. have. And they have been able to show what's around the corner to everyone else in the marketplace. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny. I think even more validation for your, your thesis is uh, the other day I was just looking at a Twitter list where I think a certain VC was just like, you know, you think email is going to be around. No, it's, it's messaging apps in, in, in the future. So that, that's another testament to it. But uh, moving on, you know, you, you talked about getting clients like the, you know, the, the New York Jets. You know, you talked about doing things, you know, with the Super Bowl and things like that. So how do you, how do you get clients like this? A lot of it is... Um you know, watching the marketplace. And so we actually work with the Brooklyn Nets and the Barclays Center, 
Uh, we don't yet work with the with the New York uh, Jets. Uh, we work with uh, we worked with the Super Bowl host committee. Oh, Super um, Bowl host, got it. Yeah, but now we work with the Seattle Seahawks, which came out of working with the Super Bowl. So I think at different industries, you start to see a chain of events, and everyone is trying to look to their peers and see what is everyone else doing in the marketplace. Um, and so I, I think you see an evolution of that. Um, people are really excited about you know what comes next, and I think something like messaging yields results within 24 hours, 48 hours, and I think a lot of people understand, you know, I, I'm spending a ton of my time uh, messaging over iChat all my coworkers, yet this is intermingled with the rest of my personal life. I just had to cut that in half, and I think that's why you start to see organic growth like that, just because colleagues are speaking with colleagues. What's, what's the open rate on, on, on messaging apps right now? Do you know what that number is? I know that for Lua, we have a 98% read rate across all of our clients wow. with all the messages. Okay. So in terms of other client, other services out there, I'm not sure, but I think when a business owner, you know, begins to do a down payment on Lua, um, we have a 15-day free trial. We don't have a freemium product, um, so we're never working to convert a, a client from pain to or from from freemium to pain. But we do give them unlimited storage. We give them analytics, all with that same price. Um, but I, I think. Um, Business owners enjoy seeing, you know, I'm paying for a service right here, but I can see day to day are people actually using this and, and seeing a, you know, a dramatic increase in that. I think there are open rates for email around 20 to 30 percent at this point. Got it. No, that's that's fantastic. Um, now, I, I read in one of your one of your interviews or on a, a piece about you. You know, you have a vision on creating efficient infrastructures in developing nations. Can you talk about that and explain what that really means? Yeah. Um, you know, we've got our start in disaster relief. Uh, we work with a few organizations, one of them being Team Rubicon, which are ex-military veterans that work around I've the world. I've worked with them before. That's excellent. <laughs> they're they're uh, one of the, I, I think, one of the best uses of our software. When I originally envisioned this, um, I wanted to help in that kind of situation. And so now knowing that around the world when something happens, uh, you know, the Team Rubicon guys are lit up on that network and, and, and beginning to, to help, uh, begin helping as quickly as possible. That's really been a, a dream come true. Um, and so in, in terms of developing nations, uh, you know, I think that if you start at the ground level and you start to help, um, we're working with a ton of nonprofits at this point and people that are in you know, some of the farthest reaching places in the world. And when you really get to that place, I think we're in a future in which you can choose your own destiny. It's, it's not in terms of upfront costs. It's the cheapest time in history to start your own company, which means you start your own future, which means you become um, self-sufficient. And so to me, the vision is to go into developing nations starting from the ground up, help them rebuild their, their, their cities, and then you know, give them uh, very uh, you know, low-cost software that can immediately light up a network in which you can start powering their, their own businesses and make their dreams come true. Because I, I hope this next generation, as it seems, is very entrepreneurial. Um, we can all build our own industries, build our own businesses, and become off-grid, if you will. And, and to me, that's a vision of connecting the world with entrepreneurs uh, in every developing nation, allowing them to, to build their own dreams, build their own businesses, and teach others uh, what they've learned. I love it. Uh, and you know, part of me, I just had this random thought. It's you know, Facebook buying WhatsApp for sixteen billion. You know, is is that what they see? Is this is this some, a space they're going to try to move into? And is that something you've thought about? Uh, we have a few investors at Facebook, and, and I think we see the world in different ways. I think you've seen a few companies spin out of Facebook by founders that are focused on the enterprise. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Facebook does, as we saw in the rings, they do what they do really well. Um, I, I I don't believe. That they're going to move into the enterprise. If, if they do, you know, I, I think we'd welcome anyone into our space. Um, but I believe to serve your consumer best, it needs to be your heart and soul. Um, we've, re we've recently seen Apple make their first steps into serving the enterprise. I think we're all familiar with Steve Jobs' attitude about, you know, I'm building my products for the for the consumer. I'm not really interested in what the enterprise is looking like. Um, you know, and, and 
the last few months, you've seen them create a partnership with IBM. And so now I think you see that all these providers are now understanding that the enterprise is really the most important piece of the pie out there. Um, developing software for people that build things is what's really, um, you know, the, the open opportunity out there. But I think it needs to be in your DNA, your heart and soul. I think you need to build, to design a system for the workplace, it needs to be what you do and what you do very well. And so because of that, I, I think we, we welcome people moving into this space, but this is what we know better than anyone else. Got it. Okay. How, how big is the company right now? We are at 29 right now. 29. Okay. So can you tell me about one big struggle you faced while growing the business? I can tell you a few. Sure. Let's do it. <laughs> I think um, really the hardest part, I, I think your biggest enemy in, in, in company creation is yourself. Um, you know. If you're going to start something, a lot of people are going to say you can't do that. They're going to list a million reasons why, why you can't do that, why you shouldn't do that, why you won't do that. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, early on when you have nothing but a piece of paper and, and a dream, uh, you have nothing to point to. So you feel like your soul is pretty naked. And you know, it, it seems like everyone in the world is out there to tell you why you can't do it. Yet if you're, you know, if, if you're a founder, heart and soul, that's your light bulb. And that's, of course. Of course, you don't understand it because they haven't built it yet. But that's why the opportunity is there. You're not saying, I can't do that because someone else is doing it. You're saying, no one's done it and it can't be done. But I think all founders should take that as a dare. And I think they should uh, not let themselves psych themselves out of it. You know, a million ideas are, are, are born every day. It's the people that execute it that do it best. And we're still early into our cycle. But I think our worst uh, fears are really ourselves. I think you can get over that. I think if you can put yourself in a peaceful state of mind in which your life isn't your business, but your business is part of your life, and you're, you're, you know, you're focused on your own happiness, you're focused on your employee's happiness, then you're going to get really far. I, I, you know, a, a great mentor of mine, Andy Weissman, once told me, you know, a company is a happiness machine. Um, and what he told me is, you know, it doesn't matter how great your vision is, how good your idea is, if, you're, if your employees aren't happy, they're not going to execute, you're not going to have a business, and this is all a race against time. Um, and so focusing on your company's happiness um, you know, I, I think is front and center the first thing. And so I, I think to answer that question first, it's really, you know, just getting over the fear of failure, the, the fear of, 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 you know, not doing what you said you would do and letting people down. If you can come to terms with the fact that there's a good chance this isn't going to work, but that's not why you're here. You're here to learn, you're here to build it. And, and you, you know, you have people around you that begin to support it. I think no fear of what you're doing is really your biggest obstacle. But, but down the road, you know, I, I think that it's very hard to design scalable software. And so when you, there are times in which you know, your engineering team uh, might not be the right one. Sometimes you need to make a hard decision that in the short term is going to slow things down, but in the long term is really going to yield the best results. And we may have had to make a, a few hard decisions um, down the road because of that. And you know, although your company is a happiness machine, that means that even if you like someone, if their position in the team isn't the best for the team as a whole, your team is less happy. Therefore, you... Because agent was that person is not performing what the company needs, and and you need to put your personal relationship out of the picture and make the best decision for the teams. So I, I think you know as companies grow and, and you start to um, go through cycles in which uh, you know people are, are are not necessarily at the stage in which you, you need your next cycle to come from. Um, you need to make those decisions fast um, and 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 do it for the good of the company. And, and so I think that you need to live and breathe your company, but you also need to live a, a separate life uh, because if you get too attached, you're going to take too long. I, I think in the last six months, we've brought on a few more senior managers. And, and the best thing I've learned from them is make decisions, make decisions fast. There's an A and a B and a C path. 
But if you hold, you don't know where them go. If you go down A and it's the wrong one, you can get down B faster than if you didn't make your decision. So making decisions fast, even if they're painful, um, I, I, I think is another obstacle that a lot of founders, uh, including myself, have gone through in the past. Can you give me an example? Um, in terms of... Yeah, so, you know, example of, you just gave a bunch of, you know, different stories right now, right? So any one of these examples where you might have like a naysayer saying, you know, you know, it's not going to work, you know, perhaps you could give a story around that or something around where you had to, you know, let someone go that's been with the company for a while that's no longer a fit. Yep, I, there have been cycles in this company in which we had, um, you know, a great marketing team, um, yet we moved out of the small to medium business and started, um, you know, targeting the mid-tier. At that point, that skill set was good for where you were, yet now you need to sell it to a much larger uh, end buyer, which means that your entire strategy needs to shift rapidly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a, that's a single example in which we had to make a shift in the team because we were beginning to build a company, uh, target larger users who are looking for a different message. And, and someone that already knows that, as opposed to someone trying to get up to speed with you, you know, surround people that are better at what they need to be. Um, at all times, and if, 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 if your needs change, make sure the team around you is changing with you. Got it. Okay. So, you know, I, I understand that you know Mandarin. Is that true? I, for sure, you I've studied Mandarin in the past. Um, I'm not fluent at this point, but um, I have uh, Italian blood, Hawaiian blood, but I also have Chinese blood. So, my whole life, I've, I've been trying to connect with that culture. Um, oh. Yeah, well, Nijang, the Wutsu, not bad. So, <laughs> cool. And has it, has it helped you in any way business-wise? I think in the next six months, it's going to become something really important that, uh, you know, skill set that a lot of our, our uh, organization has. I think that's going to come into play. Got it. Okay, cool, man. And I spent a lot of my time, um, I've spent summers in Shanghai learning, and so I've been developing relationships that I, um, I'm expecting to yield results um, in, in the short term. Okay. And what's, you know, what's one way someone can, uh, what's been effective for you in terms of learning Mandarin? Like what's your process? So some of the entrepreneurs in the audience can kind of try it out. I mean, I, I think the best way to learn any language is to immerse yourself in the culture. Go spend a few months in China. Um, you know, go find a uh, co-working space. Uh, you're likely to find, you know, I, I think people will be surprised with how educated, um, you know, the generation is at this point. They know English, but force them to speak Mandarin around you, you know, um, Grow up, immerse yourself in the culture, meet like-minded young businessmen, and, and just teach it to yourself. Because, you know, I studied Mandarin for years, and when I got there for the first time, 90% of what I learned is just ineffective. You know, I knew how to say all the, all the animals in the zoo, but I didn't necessarily know how to say, um, you know, uh, ask for, you know, uh, things in restaurants and things like that. And so, um, that's not the best example, but I, I think the example I'm trying to prove here is that there's a, a much limited vocabulary necessary to be um, to be effective in a business conversation, and the best way of learning those those important phrases and words is to immerse yourself in a co-working space, you know, in a city in which you're trying to enter, um, and, and learn that. I, I think by doing business, you learn how to do business. A lot of people say there is no class to learn how to be CEO. You go in there, you fail, you fail, you fail until you succeed. And I think it's the same thing with learning a, a business language in a different culture. Okay. Perfect. I, I agree with that. And was there any point in time where Lua was on the brink of failure? I think that every company goes through highs and lows. People call it a roller coaster uh, for a reason. Uh, I think you know your best day in the world is going to be followed by your worst day ever. And so I think all you can do to prepare yourself for that is to celebrate the highs and the lows, but internally not get too excited either way because you know things are going really well. 
there's a dip coming forward. And if you know you you were calm during the high, you'll be calm during the low, and you'll be level-headed. And so we've had our ups and our downs. You know, there've been times when our software wasn't ready to go that we've let down clients. But I think our our relationships with that client um, allowed us to continue to have them believe even while we were rebuilding, you know, essential pieces of our system. Mm-hmm. We've gotten to places where there's been so much activity that things have slowed down. And we've been fortunate enough that our clients are willing to work with us through it. Um, you know, at, at times, um, you make such rapid changes to the platform that people aren't necessarily happy. I, I think that's not um, unique to us. But I think having a good relationship with your clients until the point where they're willing to, you know, get on the phone and pitch you in a different industry, give you business ideas, you know, explain to you, you know, actually, we're about to acquire a few companies. What would it look like if we created a network between all three of us? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think a, a lot of those uh, failures can really help you build your business and your brand over time. I, I think one of the core things we're trying to do here is build a very trusted brand. Um, you know, this is reliability software, and the best you can do is be reliable at all times. Got it. Okay, cool. And before I ask this next question, how old are you right now? I'm 26. 26, damn. Okay. So, you know, my, my, my original question was, uh, what, if, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? But, okay, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 21-year-old self? I think um, patience. You know, you have hopes and dreams when you start a company. And I've now been, you know, I am only 26, but I've been working on this longer than I was in college. And if anyone had told me that when I started... Uh, there's a part of me that feels like I wouldn't, have, wouldn't even have tried. Uh, I, I think, you know, you need to have that hope, uh, but you need to know that, you know, if you're holding a candle, it's going to burn down to the bottom, and you might need to relight a new candle, um, and it's going to just take a long, long time. And the more patient you are, um, the more likely you are to succeed, because you can't get frustrated because everything is going wrong. That's a critical moment in which you win or lose. Um, when everything is going, you know, horribly wrong, how are you going to course correct so that you know the next day is going to be better and the next day is going to be better well because at the end of the day if you're, if you're the founder and the ceo of the company your attitude permeates every single person that sits around you and so it's your attitude even if everything's going wrong those people change their life to work for you and so it's your duty to be honest with them first and foremost but also you know be the leader of the company be, be strong be confident give them the plan when all the lights go out how are we going to walk out of this cave when your battery ran out of your uh, flashlight ran out of batteries you know, my understanding is uh, both of your parents are entrepreneurs, right? How has that helped kind of shape you into like who you are today? Um, I, I think, you know, when I walked into the New York tech community, I was fascinated that other people did this. Um, when you know, I, the, the story my father always tells me when I was growing up was, you know, uh, the day after you were born, I gave a laptop back to your mother, and she was coding again. I grew up in a startup household; they were building the company when I was born um, in their basement. And so the only life I've ever known is a startup. Uh, there were times when things went really well, and then a few months later, things went really poorly. And um, I, you know, uh, your your uh, standard of life changes dramatically when everything is on the line. And uh, one thing I appreciate about my parents was how honest they were with where we were. <clears throat> and when things were not going as well as they could have, they let me know ahead of time, and I went through that cycle with them. And I always saw them work their way up. And so what I saw from them was, um, you know, a a uh, work ethic that I've never seen in anyone else. I, I, I think even when I go home today, my mother is asleep, or my mother's awake when I go to sleep, my mother's awake when I wake up. She's always in her office, which is across the street, across the hall from my, from my room, and I'd, I'd never met anyone that worked that hard. And then when I started my own company, New York, 
And I, I, uh, having that sort of insight from people that have been down that path, I, I, I think, is, is really second to none. Uh, when you have a mother and a father that start a company together, you know, it ends up being a son who's in the car getting picked up from school that learns the most uh, because you know, your mother doesn't really have anyone to talk about the business with um, except for you. And you know, when you're in second grade and third grade and, and you get a pretty big business problem and she says, well, you know, what do you think about this? You don't really have a good answer. But by the time, by the time you're in fifth or sixth grade, you've been asked this question so many times that you just start going for it. And having intelligent business conversations that early on, I, I think it, it inspired me and it gave me confidence um, that I could do something because I saw other people around me uh, win and lose and win again and, and win again. And I think that that's really why I, I, I thought I could do something uh, that a lot of people said you can't do. Great. What's one productivity hack you can share with the audience? Productivity hack. I don't want to pitch my own software, but you know our company uses no <laughs> email. Uh, you know we don't internally email as a company, so find a solution that reduces the amount of back and forth you do with your own employees, because your inbox should be your external communication. And if there's critical things going on in your company, uh, you know you should put that in a different inbox. Uh, but outside of that, I, I think you know productivity hacks also go to uh, you know company happiness. Um, so be you know be transparent. Have you know what we do on Mondays is we have a company breast breakfast, we have all department heads give an update, we all eat together, and then we open up for questions at the end. On Fridays, we have a company lunch and everyone eats together. And so, you know, the more communication you have with your employees, I, I think that in itself is a productivity hack. And then over time, you know, creating loop, feedback loops, um, you know, is really important. Um, and, and in terms of just, you know, your own happiness, I, I think find some kind of spirituality that, that you believe in that, that's outside of your business. Uh, for me, you know, I've... I've um, I spent a lot of time meditating. I spent a lot of time reading, uh, you know, my own culture's history and their lessons. And recently, just learning, you know, the chanting, and and learning for me Hawaiian chanting. I, I, I Skype with a with a wonderful woman on Mondays who who uh, you know skypes in from the Big Island. We spent about two or three hours just going through ancient Hawaiian chants, learning the genealogy of the sharks, understanding you know where did the volcanoes come from, how are the islands found, you know, what got them through, you know, those centuries as they were building up the civilization. And to me, it allows me to connect with something much larger than myself. The reason I think I'm building this is, is for those people. And so for me, you know, I have uh, a reason for doing this. It's outside of my own success. And I, I think productivity hack means, uh, you know, keeping yourself as efficient as possible. And I, I think that's finding a sense of peace that exists outside of the success of your company. The more you, that you can remove your own happiness from the success of the company, I, I think uh, the better positioned you are uh, moving forward. Love it. Cool. Final question from my side. Uh, what's one must-read book you'd recommend to the audience? I, I honestly think it's, you know, there, there's so many good business books out there, but something that's a little off-color, I, I would really read the Tibetan book of living and dying. Um, it, it, it's really, um, a lot of people are familiar with the Tibetan book of the dead, the Egyptian book of the dead. That's really a, you know, that's really a, a, a handful of sayings that are read to someone on their deathbed. But if you don't have a background on what that, what that, those lessons, those final lessons really need, you don't really have any context. Uh, this Tibetan book of living and dying really teaches you, um, you know, about the fear of death, about the fear of failure at the end of the day. And I, I think that it really paints an incredible picture of humanity, of who we are as people. And once you lose your fear of, of dying, I, I, I think, you know, failing in a company is really not a not really on your radar anymore. Got it. Cool. So you said it's a Tibetan book on on living and dying, right? Yeah. Is that easy to Amazon? 
The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Tibet, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's on Amazon. I definitely recommend it. It's even a book you read a page a day and it really changes your whole day. Okay, perfect. Well, Michael DeFranco, everyone, you know, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Everyone check out his company, Lua. I know I'm going to check it out for sure. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. If you're interested in growing your revenues online and you're tired of ho-hum agency work, then it might be time to check out Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital market agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Check out Single Grain at www.singlegrain.com grow to get a free resource on eight marketing campaigns that we've used to help companies grow their revenues online, including the one that drove over 1,500% return on investment. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.